Good morning. My name is Adam Venable, and I'm the RUF campus minister at UAB. I'm one of your missionaries sent onto campus with the good news about Jesus. And so I'm not a pastor here at Red Mountain, but I do worship here, and our family worships here, and it's great to be with you all this morning. One of the things that I thought about getting ready for the passage that we're looking at this morning was when I was in middle school one time, I was on a middle school track team, and we had a statewide meet. And it was all the went to Catholic middle schools, all the Catholic middle schools, the state of Alabama, and we were over at John Carroll High School here in Birmingham. And our little school, Holy Family in Huntsville, we won the whole track meet, the state, big state track meet. And uh, I ran my event and did well. It was one of the first times as a kid that I remember just feeling like I had given my all for this great thing that was bigger than myself. And it was just amazing. Uh, you know, went to bed that night exhausted, just like dog tired, but it felt like I had done something that really mattered and that was significant. And that's why we love sports and hate them, right? That it makes us feel like we're entering into something that really matters. Uh, there's a great battle here. And even though maybe I'm sitting on my couch, I get to feel as though I'm out there giving it my all, just getting, uh, you know, used up for this great cause. And the section that we're in right now in Romans, which began in chapter 12, starts out talking about how because we're Christians, that God now wants us to give ourselves up. That because of the mercies of God, Paul says, that we're now to present our bodies as a living sacrifice. Living sacrifice is just something that is given up, used up, burned up for God. And so that's the section of Romans that we're in right now. Uh, he's talked about the good news of the gospel, and now Paul wants to tell us how should that affect our lives. And uh, a little bit about the epistle to the Romans. Paul probably wrote this epistle from uh, Corinth, the area of Corinth, to the city of Rome, which was considered the largest city in the Roman Empire at the time. What was it like to live in Rome? Well, uh, if you were what we would call the non-one-percenters in Rome at the time, your life expectancy was about 35, 35 years old, if you're not one of the one-percenters in Rome at the time. Um, about uh, 200,000 of the one million people in Rome were what we would call on government assistance. They needed assistance in order to survive, 200,000 of them. And the slave population in Rome was also massive and had ballooned during this time. In fact, any large-scale production that was going on in Rome, in the city or in the countryside, anything done on a large scale was done by slaves. That'll be important later. But um, think about that. That's the context that we're looking at as we read this passage. We're in Romans 13, uh, verses 8 through 14. Look with me as I read. This is what God's Word says. Owe no one anything except to love each other. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in this word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor, and therefore love is the fulfilling of the law. Besides this, you know the time that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep. For salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. The night is far gone, 
The day is at hand. So then let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we pray that the words of my mouth now and the meditations of our hearts together would be good and pleasing to you and centered on your Son, the Lord Jesus. Increase our joy, Lord, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. A book that I read a few years ago uh, was all about reviewing these different books that had come out over the summer on romance. And one of the things that this book said about, uh, as it reviewed these other books about romance was that over the last couple of hundred years, the language that we use to describe God in terms of, I love you, God, you're everything to me, God, uh, you're my moon and my stars, God, I do anything for you, God. We don't talk about God like that anymore in our culture. We once did for a long time. But now, instead, we only talk that way about each other, about romance. That's the way a man talks about a woman or a woman talks about a man. And in many ways, uh, Paul starts out this passage trying to reframe the way we think about love. Paul wants to take the way that Jews and Gentiles thought about love and reframe it and center it around the good news of Jesus Christ. And so I want to look at three things about love from this passage. First, the law of love. Second, the enemies of love. And third, the nearness of love. The law and the enemies and the nearness. And so first, let's look at the law of love. And it's, Paul starts out here and he says, no, uh, oh, oh, no one anything except to love each other. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. And the context of this passage is Paul describing what we owe to the government and what we owe to civil authorities and what we owe to anyone who we we might owe money. And Paul uh, tells Christians that, look, if you owe money, it's your duty to pay it because this is the law of God. And it's very important as a Christian that you obey the authorities and submit to civil government and do those things. You can't throw those off now that you've been free in Christ God's law still applies to the way you use your money and how you treat the government. And Paul might have ended there. I mean, this uh, passage could have said, look, don't owe, anyone, don't owe anyone anything. Make sure and pay your debts. Now, I'd like to talk about the law of love. But that's not what Paul does. Instead, he says, I want you to remember that you also owe love. To who? To everybody, he's basically saying. That the kind of way you think about uh, you know, those, that school loan that you're trying to pay back, very important to pay your school loan back. You can't run away from it. And Paul is saying, with the same uh, importance that you put on paying that loan back, I want you to put the same importance on loving everybody, without exception. Not just people in your family, not just people in your church, but people, uh, everyone that you come in, con- come in contact with is someone that you owe a debt of love to. And this was very important in Jewish community, which emphasized 
the law. The law was very important to the Jews. But love sometimes wasn't. And you see this in the way that the Pharisees treated people, right? The Pharisees loved to talk about the law. They were all about the law. But it was love that many times they forgot. Because love is when we connect the law to loving God and to loving each other. When you disconnect God's law, when you disconnect justice from loving each other and from loving God, that's when it destroys lives and destroys a community. And Paul is saying that you need both God's law, but you also need to remember that God's law is there to fulfill the law of love. And it's your duty to do it. You owe it. Do you ever pay that debt off? You can pay your student loan off, but Paul is saying you can't ever uh, pay off the debt of love that you owe to everyone. And next he says, uh, for these are the commandments. And he lists these specific commandments. What's the first commandment he lists? He says, you shall not commit adultery. And I'm not trying to insult your intelligence here, but in Christian circles, we do tend to mention these things without ever saying what we mean. So what does Paul mean when, he's, when he lists these commandments? You shall not commit adultery. I know it's put in the negative as a not, but what the scripture means is that all of our thoughts and words and actions in terms of our sexuality are to be lived out only in the context of a one man and one woman marriage. That's what it means to never commit adultery. Is that all your thoughts and your words and your actions they're always sexually pure. And that means if you're married, uh, all of your sexual activity is limited. You have limited your freedoms if you're married, according to the Bible, so that uh, your thoughts and words and actions about your sexuality is only with your spouse. And if you're not married, uh, you have limited your sexuality in the sense that uh, you can't have thoughts and words and actions uh, in regards to your sexuality, towards anyone else, yeah, because you're not married. Now, I'm not talking about uh, talking about your sexuality to a friend of yours. That's not what I mean. But I mean sexual activities to be limited to marriage. You shall not murder. What does that mean? That means, again, that all of our thoughts and words and actions are to be used to give life to people and not to take life. That's what it means to never murder. Jesus said that if you've even called someone a fool, you've already committed murder. And that's what this commandment is all about. All your thoughts, words, and actions used to give life, not to take it. You shall not steal. What does that mean? What the Bible means by you shall not steal is that your whole being with your whole heart, you're to rejoice in the things that other people have. And to as much as you have uh, the capacity to help other people, get more of what they need, and you're also never to take something that, that, that does not belong to you. That's what it means not to steal. And finally, thou shalt not covet. This is the 10th commandment. And that means that you should be content with what you have. Always in your heart to be at peace and content with what you have. And this was very important for Paul to lay down this law because at Rome in the time, what was the context of, of Rome? Paul's writing this letter to the Romans. How would a Roman have thought about this? And Romans tended to compartmentalize their life. There was the, there, there was the marriage component, and then there was how I behaved with my children, and then there's how I acted at work, and then there's how I acted when I went to worship that God over there. 
They compartmentalized their lives. And they, they decided what they should do according to who, who they were around. And what Paul is saying is that the God of the Bible has given us a new way to live that's not based on society, that's not based on peer pressure or the context that, that's, that, that you're in. But Jesus has given us a new way to live that's based around God's law. And that's what made Christians so peculiar in the first century, was that they behaved the same when they were with their spouse, as they did at work, as they did when they went out to uh, you know, be around folks who are worshiping false gods. They had this new sense of this is God's law, and this is uh, the law of love, and this is how God wants me to burn my life up, give all that I've got to keep God's law. He says, and any other commandment are summed up in these words, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. And therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. What does that mean? It means that we may not think of life only in terms of me and my family and my church, but we owe love to everyone. And we must consider our neighbor always in terms of what is just. What is the just thing, according to God's law, to do in this situation? How does this apply to us? Well, I think I've mentioned this before, but someone I was listening to just summarized the way we tend to think of life in our culture right now. And it's something like this. Look, how, if you want to be happy, what should you do if you want to be happy? Well, you know, I try to feel good and uh, be happy and go on vacation and have sex and buy stuff. And uh, maybe that'll work. Does it work? Is that a working uh, solution to, to, to have joy in your life? And what I would submit to you and what Paul would say to you is, no, it is not. That it is knocking yourself out so that you are tired at the end of the day trying to obey God's law and to love your neighbor. And that's what Jesus died to make you to be. Who should you be? You should be someone that's given your whole heart to God, trying to obey his law. The enemy of love, or the enemies, plural of love. Let's talk about that now. I was listening to uh, NPR this past week, and someone, uh, some of you smart people will know why, but Edgar Allan Poe, they kept talking about Edgar Allan Poe and NPR. You can tell me afterwards why that was. But they're reflecting on why Edgar Allan Poe was so unique uh, in the 1800s. And of course, he was, uh, you know, lived alongside Emerson and Thoreau, and they tended to write about nature and trying to get back to the natural world and that, uh, you know, society would have so much more peace and goodness if we would just kind of get back to the way things naturally were in the world. And Edgar Allan Poe was very unique in that he came along and said, well, yeah, that's great, but what if I turn against the people who are closest to me and destroy them? Edgar Allan Poe says, uh, all that other stuff about getting back to nature is not going to do me any good if I turn against the people closest to me and destroy them. Those of you who've read Poe know what I mean. And this passage is all about facing that reality, that there is an enemy inside us. This is the bad news of the gospel, right? We talk about the gospel being good news, and it is that, but it also reveals who the enemy is. And this is what Paul says. He says, let us walk properly as in the daytime. Here's the bad news. Here's the enemy within. 
not in orgies and drunkenness, he says. And remember, the Roman uh, idea to compartmentalize your life. You know, this is okay over here, but not okay over here. I just need to know uh, what's appropriate in the given context and uh, just kind of build my moral system around that. And Paul is saying, you have got to cast off the works of darkness. He calls them orgies and drunkenness. And look, I don't want to be uh, a pastor friend of mine that says that. He doesn't want to be more earthy than the Bible is. I don't want to be more earthy than the Bible is and make things awkward. But I don't want to be less earthy than the Bible is either. Uh, So here's the words that Paul uses. Orgies and drunkenness. And in the Roman context, these would have been parties that went on late into the night. Um, Parties where all self-restraint was thrown off, where uh, alcohol was always involved. And Paul is saying, these are the works of darkness and you've got to cast them off. What is drunkenness? That's the word sometimes we don't define. It's drinking with the intent to get drunk. That's what drunkenness is. And it's especially doing it repetitively, living a life of drunkenness. Doing it once and then doing it many, many times. And how does that apply to us? Well, um, I guess I would say this. If, if you were drinking alcohol and, uh, you know, you can come to church and uh, have lived in church your whole life. And there are things that people don't know about you. Uh, but what the Spirit and what the Scripture wants to do is to move into your heart. To move into your heart to make you who God wants you to be. And so what I would say is, is that if you were drinking with the intent of getting drunk, and especially if you're doing it uh, you know, day, you know, d- days each week, the Scripture would say that that's drunkenness. And that uh, that means that you're not walking properly as in the daytime. And you've got to cast off the works of darkness. The works of darkness. He then mentions sexual immorality and sensuality. Um, again, so important to understand the, the Roman context of this. What does sexual immorality and sensuality mean when Paul wrote it? And the first thing is that there was a massive double standard between men and women about sexual immorality in the first century. Especially if you were of the upper classes of society, women were expected to remain very sexually pure, always faithful to their husbands. Extreme shame for sexual immorality. If you're of of the upper class, if you're a woman, if you are a man, anything goes. If you were a part of the upper class of society and you were male, you could basically do whatever you wanted sexually. And that was just part of being a man. And what Paul is saying is he's trying to take that double standard and say that this is not giving you life. Oh, Romans, you who live this way, what would give you life? Is it if men, you had the same standard for yourself as you Romans hold up uh, for women in society. But that was just the one percenters. That was just the upper class. Think about everyone else who tended to be, there was no middle class in Rome. You're either one percent at the top or you're at the one percent at the bottom. I know mathematically that doesn't make sense, but you know what I mean. Remember, there were a lot of slaves. What were slaves expected to do in Rome? All large scale production in Rome, agriculture or in the city. It's done by slaves. Slaves were expected to be not just 
manual labor, but sexual servants to their masters. And Paul is saying, you slaves, I want you to do something dangerous. Um, You slaves who believe in the Messiah, who believe in the Son of God, who've experienced the power of the good news of, uh, of the gospel in your life, those of you who are slaves, I want you to do something risky. Sort of like what the midwives did in Egypt, where Pharaoh threatened to kill the firstborn, and the midwives saved the firstborn, risking their lives. I want you to be like those midwives. And the next time your master asks you to break the code that I've asked you to keep, you cannot be sexually immoral. Sex is for marriage. I want you to say no. I want you to say I'm not going to do that. I want you to risk your life. I want you to risk everything you've got. Because this is the way you will burn yourself up for God. It's hard for me to talk about this without getting emotional. But think of what it costs them to turn away from, from, from what God would say, this is sexual. If you're forced to do it, that is not sexual morality. You're, you're, you're a victim then, and God weeps with you. But you're not to participate willingly. And Paul is saying, you've got to put away sexual immorality and sensuality. How would that apply to us, uh, we who live lives so much uh, different from these Romans? And um, the first thing it applies to, I think, is pornography. And I think sometimes pornography in Christian circles, it tends to get talked about like this, that, you know, um, we're broken people, and this is something that we wish that we didn't do, but thank God for His grace Um, Because that means that I can basically uh, look at pornography and be addicted to it. But God's grace covers my sins and thank God for his grace. And we just end the sentence right there. And that's not what Paul's saying. It's just not. He's saying these are the works of darkness. If you are looking at pornography, you cannot love your spouse. You cannot love your friends. And he's saying it's not appropriate because it's daytime. It's not night anymore. You've got to cast it off. He mentions quarreling and jealousy. And I'm, I'm just going to go through these quickly. Um, you know, quarreling is, it's, it's okay to argue, right? Arguing is okay. It's okay to get mad when you argue. As long as, right, as long as you're not wounding, you're not, your attention is not to wound the person you're talking to. And when you're arguing, you're always trying to listen to the other person. I want to listen to what you're saying. I want to understand your perspective. I'm not trying to wound you. You start a life of quarreling when all your conversations go something like this. Look, this is about me and my perspective. I do not care about your perspective. I don't care about your feelings. It's always about me and me and me and me. That's a life of quarreling. What about jealousy? Uh, Jealousy is being envious of someone else's possessions or achievements. Or being fiercely protective of your own. That's what jealousy is. And Paul says, make no provision for this. Make no provision for the flesh. Do not gratify its desires. What does that mean to make provision for the flesh? Or or, um, to try to gratify your flesh's desires? And someone I, I listened to put this in a way that was just perfect. And the word that they used was agreements. When you make provision... For your flesh, you enter into an agreement with your flesh uh, that goes something like this. Your flesh comes to you 
And the Bible describes your flesh as living and active. And I don't mean your skin and your bones, but the spiritual enemy that's inside you. It talks to you. It has a voice, right? And it says, look, um, I know you feel so guilty. And um, I, I know you feel so worthless. This is your flesh talking. But you know, if you will start to... Uh, really blame and lash out at that friend of yours, if you'll start to really blame and lash out at your spouse, you won't feel guilty anymore. You'll forget all about it. Let's go for it. And when we do that, we make provision for our flesh. We plan, how can I gratify the desires of my flesh? Or, what about this? um, many Many of us have small children. And sometimes we feel so weak, don't we? Having children makes you feel weak. And uh, and sometimes like you don't know what you're doing. And your flesh will come to you and and whisper to you. You know what will help you in your weakness is to, uh, to add a second and a third, maybe a fourth glass of wine. That'll help you in your weakness, won't it? And we make provision for our flesh to gratify its desires. Does it work? Is, is your flesh ever satisfied? It's not satisfied. It doesn't work that way. And Paul is saying this is darkness. Cast it off. There's an enemy of love. And it's inside you. We've got to recognize its voice. And not make plans to satisfy it. Okay, I'm going to end with this. Um, we've talked about the law of love. And the enemies of love. Uh, Let's talk about the nearness of love. When I was getting ready to think about this part, it mentions clothes and clothing yourself a lot in this part of the passage. And it really reminded me of when I was a little kid. I idolized my grandfather who'd served overseas in the army. And he had given me his army jacket. And it still had his name. His last name was Stone. It was written there on his jacket. And I loved putting that jacket on, you know, five sizes too big, and just running around the yard in my grandfather's army jacket. And when I had that thing on, it felt like I could do anything. kind of confidence that it gave me. More than anything, I think as a, you know, third grader, couldn't articulate it this way, but I think in a real way it made me feel, it made me feel loved. Um, in a way that just my grandfather telling me, Adam, I love you. Adam, I care about you. Adam, here's a Christmas present. Adam, you want to go fishing with me? To put on the clothes that my grandfather had, had war in this war. It touched me in a way that was profound. And we long for God's love to come near to us. Right? We want to wear it. Um, I was listening to the radio this week, and someone on the radio was remember being in high school and their girlfriend, how special it was when their girlfriend had worn their letterman jacket. Just how special it made him feel. She wanted to wear it. And he loved it that she wanted to wear it. What Paul wants us to see here is that God's love has come, has come near to us. He says, besides this, you know the time. That the hour has come for you to wake from sleep, for salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. 
What does he mean that there's, the, the time has come? There, there's an hour. We're supposed to be awake and not asleep. And salvation's nearer now. And Salvation in Jesus Christ, in order to understand it, you have to understand the story of Israel. It's all about Israel and God's promise to Israel to send this Messiah who was going to make it to where all their sins were cleansed and this kingdom was going to come and God God was going to adopt Israel and finally be their father and finally draw Israel near to them so that his love was tangible and felt and real. And Paul is saying that all of that has now happened. Now's the hours. Now is the time. It's happened in Jesus. Everything God promised to Israel has come true in Jesus Christ. And it's come true for the whole world, not just for Israel. And he says this is what salvation is. And salvation in the Bible is sometimes, uh, I want you to picture it like a loaf of bread. And sometimes... Bible talks about salvation, this loaf of bread, like it's one slice, like it's one thing, right? Forgiveness of sins, that's one slice of the bread. But there's more than that. It's also uh, adoption. You get adopted into God's family, but, but, but there's another slice. It's also you get the Holy Spirit and you get transformed. And here when Paul says that the salvation is nearer now than it was when we first believed, he's even cl- including the return of Jesus which has not happened yet. It's the end of the loaf of bread that we're still waiting on. But it's nearer, Paul wants us to know. It's coming. Uh, It's coming like a freight train. Um, It's coming like that Amazon package that you ordered. So wait for it. It's nearer. It's coming. And Paul is saying, to to give into your flesh, just to give yourself over to your own desires, it's like that uh, great pair of shoes that you ordered from Amazon that you've been waiting a week on. And then the day before, it's going ret- to be here tomorrow. But you just decide, ah, I, I can't wait that long. Cancel. And your friend would say, it was going to come tomorrow. Don't. It was going to come. It's, it's nearer. It's coming. And that's what Paul wants us to see is that salvation is near. His love has drawn near to us. It is, it's, it's close to us in Jesus Christ. And the, the last thing he says here is that we're supposed to put on the Lord Jesus Christ. We're supposed to put him on like a jacket, put him on like a cloak. And wh- what does that mean? You know, I had this professor in college, and he was always dressed to the nines. Uh, tie, vest, coat. I think he had like a watch, like a, you know, that was attached to his belt. And someone said something to him one time. Why do you dress like this? I, I mean, I, I, I see a tie. You're a professor, but you're going over the top. And he said this. I never forgot it. You know, some people think I dress this way because I think I'm special. I'm such a great person. That's why I dress up all the time. You know, it's actually the opposite. I'm kind of lazy. And uh, I'm, I'm prone to a lot of self-loathing. And... Putting on clothes that looks like I've got something important to do today really makes me feel like I do, in fact, have something important to do today. And that's why I dress like this. Paul says, put on the Lord Jesus Christ, not because we're super spiritual, not because we think we're these great people that are just going to change the world in and of ourselves. He says, put on the Lord Jesus Christ. Because you've already put him on at your baptism. Everyone who's been baptized in Christ has put on the Lord Jesus Christ. 
to fight your flesh and to keep this law of love, I want you to change your perspective and remember that you have put on Jesus Christ. I want you to put Him on again in your mind. Remember that there's now no condemnation. That you're free. You've been given, you're freed from your sins. You're freed from all that condemnation. You don't have to do the self-loathing thing. Think about your heart like a house. Someone told this to me the other day. Such a great analogy. Your heart, it's like a house. When your flesh, you know, it's going to come knocking at the door. When your flesh comes knocking at the door and it says, you know, you're a terrible person and uh, you should feel terrible about yourself. Um, you're, you're not worth anything. You're not really good at anything. Why don't, you, uh, why don't you come out here with me? I, I can help you with that. I can, I can help you with that problem that you're in. Paul says, put on the Lord Jesus Christ. Put him on right there at the door while your flesh is talking to you. And you tell him, well, the Lord Jesus Christ says that I'm not guilty. He says there's now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Uh, you're not welcome here, voice of my flesh. Or what about that, uh, that voice that comes and knocks on the door in your heart that says, I just feel empty. Um, I feel empty and I'm tired. And uh, I, I can't change that. There's nothing I can do to not feel empty. And your flesh knocks on the door. I can help you with that emptiness thing. Come and gratify your flesh some. Put on the Lord Jesus Christ, Paul says. Because the Lord Jesus promises that He is our fullness, even when we're empty. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore, God promises us in Christ Jesus. The flesh, whatever you're promising me, it's a lie. And I have got glory in my Savior Jesus Christ who I have put on like a jacket. The love of Jesus is near to me. As we close today, uh, let me invite you to, um, to pray with me that God would make that real in our hearts. And not just for us, but for folks all over Birmingham. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for uh, lifting our eyes from ourself to you who have got love and fullness and forgiveness for us. We pray that you would make the nearness of your love, like we've put on Christ, so real to us that we would recognize the voices that knock on the door of our hearts, that we would be able to be changed, become the men and women and boys and girls that you made us to be. Uh, people who are tired at the end of the day, because of we've, we've, we've given our all for each other and for our city. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.